Welcome to Acquired. Today, we're sitting down with Kevin Rose. Kevin was one of the pioneers of Web 2.0 as the founder of Dig, and then became one of the Valley's first super angels, investing early in companies like Twitter, Facebook, and Square. Today, he's a partner at True Ventures and host of the Modern Finance Podcast. Let's chat with him. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Did you like that? Should we put that in? I've always wanted to do that. Who got the truth? Is it you? Is it you? Is it you? Who got the truth now? Is it you? Is it you? Is it you? Sit me down. Say it straight. Another story on the way. Who got the truth? Welcome to this special episode of Acquired, the podcast about great technology companies and the stories and playbooks behind them. I'm Ben Gilbert, and I'm the co-founder and managing director of Seattle-based Pioneer Square Labs and our venture fund, PSL Ventures. And I'm David Rosenthal, and I am an angel investor based in San Francisco. And we are your hosts. This was so effing cool. Oh, man. <laughs> Kevin is so great. We had such a blast. Of course, we went deep. We covered the screensavers, the real origin story of Dig, the Dignation parties at South by that Ben, you were at <laughs> back in the day. Totally. I wasn't expecting him to... He like corrected the record. All the previous Dig founding stories are wrong. I know. Wikipedia is wrong, apparently. Well, listeners, this episode basically has two chapters. We start in Web 2 and we end in Web 3. And obviously, Kevin is super deep on all things crypto, blockchain, NFTs, and he's doing a really cool thing on the Modern Finance podcast. And he even ends the show with announcing a new thing that he's doing. So um, stay tuned for that. But I had so much fun this episode pattern matching everything Kevin learned from Web 2 to the Web 3 world. All right. Well, David, this is the perfect time to talk about one of our favorite companies, Statsig. Yes. When we had VJ on ACQ2 earlier this year, they were already a pretty impressive kind of Series B stage startup with a killer team and early product market fit. But what's happened since and the scale that they're operating at now is pretty wild. This is where we get lucky in being very choosy with our sponsors. Sometimes these things happen to them while we're mid-flight. Yes. So I asked them for some fun stats. In the past month, Statsig shipped actual live product experiments to over 1.2 billion end users. Now, that stat is not deduplicated across apps, so there's some overlap. But I mean, even if you cut that in half to approximate actual flesh and blood human people out there, that's almost 10% of the world's population. Crazy. Okay, so that's one. Two. Statsig now processes about 130 billion events per day. So the infrastructure that Statsig now has to support these data volumes is pretty wild. And it's not like they just execute these events. They then take all the data from them, run huge statistical jobs across the whole corpus to compute the experiment results that their customers are running. It is just wild. It's funny. I hadn't thought to make this comparison until right now. So you said 1.7 million events a second. If you look at the Visa numbers, I just pulled up my Visa notes. Visa does 8,600 transactions per second. So that's what, 200 times as much throughput at Statsig than at Visa? On the customer side, Statsig added arguably almost all of the most important AI companies in the world this year, including Microsoft, Atlassian, Anthropic, along, of course, with regular old companies like Notion and UiPath and Lattice and Brex and friends of the show Rec Room. The team also kept shipping super fast. 
at the start of the year, they had just one core product. Today, they're a full-fledged product understanding platform. They have dedicated feature flagging, warehouse-native experimentation, and product analytics. Yep. So if your team wants the best platform in the world for making data-driven product decisions, you should reach out. Statsig.com slash acquired. And as always, there is special white glove onboarding for all acquired listeners. Our huge thanks to Statsig. All right, two last things. One, as usual, this is not investment advice from either us or Kevin. Do your own research. Come to your own conclusions on making your own investments. This is for entertainment and informational purposes only, as usual. Two, join us in the Acquired Slack, acquired.fm slash Slack. We are nearing the 10,000 person mark. It is a great group, and uh, we'd love to have you. Now, on to our conversation with the one and only Kevin Rose. Kevin Rose, so great to be talking with you. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. This is going to be fun. I think many, many episodes of my teenage years watching Dignation later, I feel probably the same way a lot of our listeners do when they run into David Nyard and they're like, oh my God, you're like a real human. I I feel very, very similarly talking to you today. So thank you for all the just massive indulgence of nerdery over the years. Yeah, there was a bunch of uh, nerd stuff there, a little comedy. Hopefully, I didn't convince you to start drinking at a young age because we were of legal age, but we did consume beers on on each episode. No, Uh, no. I was lucky. I actually started watching you on screensavers when there was no alcohol involved. So back when I was tech TV uh, days, a middle school tech. Yeah, tech TV. Oh, we're going to get into it. Let's start because this is acquired way back. So, Kevin, I think. We have it right. You grew up in Vegas, but your family's from Wisconsin, which is a state we've talked about recently with Mark Andreessen growing up there and Beeple on your show. What was that like? Yeah, you know, I the, my earliest memories, I was born in Redding, California, but I don't remember it. And then I remember living in Oregon for a bit, which is where I am now in Portland. But we were living in a little town called Salem. And then when I was in second grade, we moved out to Las Vegas because there was just work there. That was like a place where my dad could find a job. And so we moved out there. I kind of grew up thinking it was normal for, you know, 7-Elevens to have slot machines in them. Like there was just a, a lot of things that Vegas does to you. And, you know, it was one of those things where I got geeky and got into computers and then quickly realized that the action, you know, really wasn't in Las Vegas. If you wanted to be in the hotel industry or work in gaming in some capacity, that was the place to be. But when I was around 18 or so, I kind of realized, well, I should probably think about moving someplace else like Silicon Valley or, you know, someplace that had a bigger tech scene. I'm super curious. How did you figure that out? I felt the same way. I grew up in Pennsylvania, but I had no idea that Silicon Valley existed. Like, what was the process by which you like learned that this was a thing? Because like, there was no, you know, there's the internet, right? But like, it wasn't obvious in the way it is now. Yeah. So basically, when you started to get into computers back then, you're right, there wasn't like the internet where you could just go and figure all this stuff out. So I was on bulletin board systems and kind of dial up. And I remember going into computer stores and buying computer magazines, because that's what we did to stay up with all the latest trends. You would just buy a magazine that was about computers, take it home and read about motherboards, right? So I just basically would hear about these conferences. And there was one called Comdex, which was the world's largest computer convention. And it was held in Las Vegas. And so (laughs) I was like, oh, I got to go to this Comdex thing, right? You're in high school at this point? 
Yeah, I was in early high school and I filled out a Comdex application to go because it was free. The passes were free, but you had to have a business. So I just made up a fake business name. I called it Foliage Software. And then I would apply and I received a badge in the mail. And I was like, okay, I'm going. And I talked my parents into driving me down to the convention center. This was before CES or CES was very much, much smaller back then. And I would go and just walk the aisles and look at all the different processors and motherboards and video cards and all of the crazy, every big manufacturer had a kind of a, a block, a display there that you could go and walk up and try out all the new products. And it was like the coolest thing ever. And this was stuff that hadn't hit the market yet, right? Hadn't hit the market yet. It was brand new. And that's how I realized that all these companies were not based here. They were based, you know, most of them were kind of California, Silicon Valley based. But I was the youngest kid on the floor. Like I had to kind of dress up. I put a, like a collared shirt on. And then it was funny because they noticed a couple kids started coming and they banned, you had to be at least 16 to get in. And so the next year, I think I was 15 and I was like, oh, how am I going to prove that I'm 16? I think if someone asked me, I just told them I was 16. I had to have my birth date memorized for a year earlier. And then the next year, they made it so you had to be 18 to get in. And I was like, crap. <laughs> and so they just kept moving the gold line. Yeah, exactly. A fake ID to get into a computer convention. So anyway, that was the early days. Oh, my gosh. All these silicon companies that were like all the companies that were exhibiting at Comdex. And oh, yeah. Yeah, they're all based out in Silicon Valley. It was really Silicon Valley, but they weren't building fabs anymore. And so they could just move at such a faster pace. I, mean, I remember this. And it was like all this new product all these chips, all these, you know, PCI plugins for motherboards, oh they're all hitting the market so fast. Oh, that was awesome. It was so exciting when you hear about a new clock speed come out, right? Like Intel would announce something and you're like, wow, a 66 megahertz processor or, you know, AMD would have out their new chip. And then, you know, you have the weird folks that were all like the deck alphas, like a completely different risk versus CISC based processors yeah, and yeah. that weren't compatible with Windows and they weren't compatible <laughs> with others. You're like, whoa, wait a second. What's this Unix thing? And it was just, it was a crazy time. Okay, so before we move on from Vegas, obviously you were dyed-in-the-wool computer geek, sneaking into Comdex, that's amazing. Was there anything like sort of presaging your soon-to-be future career on uh, in front of the camera? Like, did you do like drama in high school? No. Like, what? <laughs> no, I think I was like the most shy kind of kid growing up and just didn't have a ton of friends in high school. And Back then, I don't even know if this holds true today, but back then it was not cool to be into computers. And so you got made fun of a lot and didn't have a lot of friends. We were definitely not the popular kids in school and got picked on. And so it was not in my DNA to be... I didn't apply to work at Tech TV to be in front of the camera. I just wanted to be behind the scenes. And so I was kind of like setting up all the technical demos. And if they need a certain you know version of Linux installed, I would install that. And just like you know, making sure that things were moving smoothly uh, in that regard. So it was just by chance that that I, I ended up on camera. Yeah. Do you remember your sort of like break, like the moment where someone was like, hey, Kevin, you should be on air talent? Yeah. I mean, I had discovered a vulnerability in Windows that was a way to spam people using this kind of uh, internal messaging tool. And so you could basically just send a message to any IP address and Windows would display it on the screen. And while it wasn't necessarily kind of a vulnerability in the sense of the person wasn't getting hacked, it was definitely a way to spam people. You could just write a little utility that would just go through IP addresses and deliver, you know, little notifications to their desktop. 
And so I told the host about it and they're like, oh, well, you figured this out. You should come on and talk about it. And so they invited me on. Were Leo Laporte and Patrick Norton hosting at this point? Exactly. So Leo Laporte had me uh, next to him and I was so nervous. I was just sweating <laughs> and just like, oh, and I went on and I kind of delivered it and explained it. And the executive producer, Paul Block was like, hey, I like what you did there. Like, can you find more weird things to talk about that are not really known? And I was thinking like, well, I know a lot of these like hacking tools and stuff that I mess around with at night. Like we could talk more about those types of things. And he was like, yeah, do more of that. And let's see how you do. And let's have you come on once a week and talk about a certain tool. So, you know, I look back and kind of cringe at some of that stuff because it was, you could just hear in my voice and the way I presented, especially in the earlier episodes, I just didn't... um it wasn't in my DNA to be on camera. And actually, they sent me to a talent coach that would come in and record you and play back footage with you and make you watch yourself and talk oh. about how you hold your hands. Oh. And like, there's these dedicated coaches that, that will teach you everything. I did that once. I was at Microsoft and I was going to go speak on behalf of the company to a newspaper. And they had me speak with a coach first and she videotaped and I think it was like 5K for like two hours. Like it was this yeah. exorbitant corporate markup. And uh, she videotaped me for some of my talking points and then like made me watch it back while we were sitting there at the table. Right. And it was the most painful experience. It helps a ton though. I mean, it's a, it good, it's a good strategy for sure. Totally. You were the dark tipper on the show, right? That was the horrible nickname they gave me on the show. Yeah. <laughs> was that from that first episode? Did Leo just like riff that? Like, where did that come from? Well, we used to have these things called like Windows tips. And like, it was like a quick check in. You're like, okay, when you're doing a segment, so everything in, in TV is broken into blocks. And so they'll have like the A block, which is the very beginning of the show. And they break it down into individual segments. There's a person keeping kind of a timer on making sure when you're doing live TV, making sure the blocks don't go too long because it impacts other people's segments. And there's it's very tight, well-oiled machine that has to run perfectly to pull off a live show. And so they had these little kickers that they would do. Like when you finish a block, you bump out to a Windows tip or a little you know 30 second, 45 second, one minute long max little tip. And so they're like, okay, well, we're going to do, Kevin's going to do tips that are about the dark side of the internet. Let's call them dark tips. And then they <laughs> call me the dark tipper as a joke. And then it just kind of like was a, a funny little thing on the on the show. That's so great. Screensavers was live in front of a studio audience, right? Yeah. Were they like changing over the set while you were doing this on the, on the main segment? Well, the cool thing is that they could have basically, because the number of cameras they had, and the locations on the set, you didn't have to do a lot of changing because there's always two locations to shoot. And so you would have like one off to the side and one primary like front location and then even one over in the nook where we took live calls. So there wasn't a lot of quick set change unless it was like a guest interview. And that was typically done between commercial breaks. We would go off to a commercial, you know, you have three minutes and change and then they'd swap out, roll away the main center console and then, you know, put in a couple of chairs, get the guests seated, all the mics checked, all that good stuff. So it's a crazy thing because weird stuff breaks, you know, like a guest microphone goes out and somebody's running in 30 seconds before you come back on TV, swapping <laughs> out mics and like just demos break, computers reboot randomly, like weird stuff would happen and you just have to kind of roll with it. So that's the fun dynamic of live television. David, we're so spoiled with Acquired, like infinite retakes, just audio. I was literally thinking I'm kind of jealous. Like that must have been such good trail. Like this explains like why you're so good because you had to just like roll with it. Whereas, yeah, we just <laughs> we've been doing this for six years, but like 
we have so many luxuries, you know? Well, there's something nice about just being able to say, okay, screw it. Like if I mess up, like, so be it. And we're done. Then you're done. You know what I mean? Like with my podcasts and stuff that I do now, it's like, I'm always going back and, you know, I'll listen to an episode that I think is really important. I want to make sure the editor got it right. And you're like listening to it again. You're like, okay, we can trim a little bit here. And, you know, it's like you just walked out of the studio and you're like, okay, we're done for the day on to the next day. So there was nothing you could do when it goes out. You really can obsess for like a week, like until it is out there. And even after like you get any feedback that it was actually good, you're like, I just released something awful. Like this is right. just, I have this pit and the feeling in my stomach. I wish I had spent more time editing, even though I'm sure I just spent way too much cognitive load on this. Yeah. And you, well, you never know with your guests, right? Like you'll have a guest and you're like, okay, this is a very important person to have on the show for X, Y, or Z. And then you get them on and you're like, so tell me about your background. And they're like, it was great. And then they just like <laughs> stop talking and you're like, oh, you, yes. come on. Like I, I got to pull more out of you. This has to be entertaining. <laughs> You know, so it can be challenging, you know, as someone doing the interviews to kind of get people to actually open up. Totally. Well, because we're having that enormous problem here, I'm going to pry even deeper. Yeah. So you did not move to the Bay Area to work at Tech TV. You were, was your first job digital marketing for like an online furniture retailer? That's right. Yeah. So basically, there was a company called Next Office that had hired me to come out and just really track all of their ad campaigns and ad spend. And so they had a marketing team that was going out and buying banner advertisements. And people would click on those and eventually lead all the way down to a checkout. And they wanted to know what the conversion rate was like and where they should be, should be spending their money. And it wasn't ideal for me, but I knew at that point, I'm like, I'll take any job that gets me to the Bay Area. Like, what can I do to get me out there? Because it was the dot-com boom. You know, I was reading about it in magazines and it was the crazy web 1.0 and just like insane valuations and parties and like just all the madness that you saw IPOs. And I was like, I got to get out there. I got to get out there, you know? So I just uh, I went online and I posted something on, I think like it was monster.com, like the jobs board. And, you know, uh, Mike Mazur, who later became really good friends, uh, reached out to me and was like, hey, I think you'd be great for this role. We had a phone interview and then they flew me out and gave me a job offer and I took it. Super cool. Do you recall how many years you were on screensavers before the whole G4 (laughs) seemingly debacle from the outside? Yeah, it wasn't that long, actually, because I think it was two and a half years that I was at Tech TV which at that time, you know, it was the longest job I'd ever had. And it was just, oh, it was so awesome. It seemed like it was a special place. A really special place. Or the majority of people were in their 20s that kind of like were around the set and hanging out. And we would all just party with each other afterwards and go out. And we were all really close. We were just like a family. And it's still even today when I see those people, it felt like a very special time in our lives. And we just had no kind of no idea what we were doing, but also we knew what we wanted to create. And it was a very creative group of people and the content was good. And Leo was like a great anchor host. He was a little bit older than us, but kind of brought everything together and had a great executive producer that was hilarious and fun to work for. And it, yeah, it was, it was awesome. And, but the problem with tech TV is that we weren't as a network really making that much money. It was indie, right? It was owned by Paul Allen? That's right. So Paul Allen owned it, and he was pouring a lot of money into it to keep it alive. And it was an expensive network to operate. I mean, we had hundreds of people. And eventually, they said, okay, I can't keep spending more money here. We need to actually 
do something and, and be acquired. And so G4, based out of LA, came along and said, we're a video game network. We think this is the future. We're going to acquire Tech TV more or less for the subs. So they, they bought Tech TV. And they also thought it was a very similar audience. And they didn't want to lose that because we had some shows, a couple shows, screensavers being one of them, that were getting decent ratings. So they're like, okay, how can we kind of bring that audience along, merge it with our video game content? And so that's what happened. They bought us and they said, okay, by the way, we're going to shut down San Francisco. We're moving folks to LA. And so, you know, they gave me an offer to come down and continue to host the show down in Los Angeles. And so that's what I did. In retrospect, it seems so obviously silly because especially, I mean, even now, but at that point, the Bay Area was the center of everything that you guys were doing with screensavers to move it down to LA. Like, because G4 was owned by Comcast, right? That's right. Yeah, not to mention just the culture clash. That must have been rough. They knew it was really rough. And and they knew long term that they wanted to morph the screensavers into another show. And they weren't going to tell us that, but they knew that was the plan. So when I saw that was happening, that's not what I wanted to be long term. I didn't want to be an on-air TV person. So for me, I, the kind of writing was on the wall that I needed to go do something else and you know hopefully get back to the Bay Area. And so... It led me to right around when we created Dig, and then also I created a podcasting network called Revision 3 yeah. that was about creating that more of that type of content, like more geeky style content in podcast format. Does Revision 3 predate the term podcast? Yes. Yes, because we were doing video only and there was no way to do a feed of that. And so Steve Jobs had announced that there was something called podcast that they were going to support and build that into iTunes. And that's when Alex and I said, okay, let's get together and do a show called Dignation because now we have a place to distribute it. At the risk of like being way too far down the rabbit hole of internet nostalgia, I seem to remember an opening jingle from Leo's shows that was like netcasts you love from people you trust. That's right. Funny thinking that like netcasts almost became the thing. Yeah, he didn't want to use the word podcast, and I'm not sure why that was. I think that he wanted to brand it his own thing. And yeah, that I don't think he had quite the momentum. It was who's Adam Curry that coined the term podcast. And I think that Leo was thinking at the time, and I, I believe this is accurate, that he was thinking that it shouldn't be just about Apple. And about mm. the iPod, because that's what podcasts kind of like, you know, referenced. Because yeah. Leo was always a big open source advocate and things yeah. like that. Yeah, oh, like, that's so Leo. How can that's we, awesome. yeah, so, so Leo. Like, how can we make this more broadly applicable? Which, yeah, that makes sense. But once the kind of uh, snowball of the term podcast grabbed hold, there was no going back. Yeah, it's like, here I own zero iPods and listen to my podcasts on Spotify, who's actively suing Apple. Right. Like it, it it stuck pretty hard. <laughs> yeah, totally. I always thought a lot of those terms were just hilarious. Like the iPod, like I, when you used to put I in front of things, it meant like internet. internet. Yeah. yeah. And so I always used to like to say these things out loud just to hear how ridiculous they were. Like <laughs> sometimes I still tell people to send me electronic mail because like that's what E stood for in anything yep. E, you know, it's like, it's so funny when you like actually pronounce them out loud. It's amazing how long these things stick. Yeah. All right. So thesis with revision three, though, like there's a, a very clear 
loud part of Twitter today talking about the creator economy and like beating the drum that this is the next emergent thing. David and I feel like we've sort of experienced it firsthand. You've been experiencing it through multiple generations of the web. Did you have a thesis in starting that about the web and the internet is this new direct way to reach consumers? Yeah, absolutely. When we started Revision 3, the thinking there was that video was working online, like it was starting to take off and people could consume and watch video content. It was easy to produce on our side, like we could have some kind of mid-range cameras and gear and editor that we would just, you know, pay part-time we could churn that out. And if we got enough people interested and excited, there would be brands that wanted to sponsor it. And that ended up being true. And so we had, you know, an ad sales team and we had a network of shows and, you know, Revision 3 grew pretty quickly because people were starting to tune in and they, we found that niche audiences were quite large. And when they would talk to each other and use the internet to kind of share that this type of content was out there, we didn't have to rely upon these distribution agreements of these big old school television networks to get viewership. And we could actually measure it in a much more accurate way. And so that's what kind of started Revision 3. And yeah, that went on for many years and actually had a great outcome. It was sold to Discovery Networks for $35 million. And even though that sounds small these days, at the time, it was a big deal. Yeah. And um, it became Discovery Networks kind of digital arm. Basically, they were all about you know traditional media. And so for them to get into digital, this gave them a handful of folks that could come and lead that effort on the digital side. So it was pretty cool. That's great. And so at what point did you realize the like flywheel effect of having a media stream with Dignation and other ways that you're reaching people and being the founder of Dig, like having this Web 2.0 property? Yeah, it's a good question. When we started Dignation, we thought of it as a way to... Because we had a base of people that really loved the dynamic that Alex and I had back when we were hosting the television show together. So when we started this, we were like, okay, here's a great way for us to talk about the stuff we would normally be talking about, which is like the geeky news, our favorite stories. I also happen to have the website Dig, and so it's a great way to surface the best stuff for us to be chatting about. And it became this kind of like way to engage the community and highlight their names. I had a top leaderboard back then on Dig. And as silly as it sounds like it was, it was really people loved seeing their name in lights. Like, like, oh, Kevin and Alex mentioned me on the show. Like that's, they mentioned one of the stories that I submitted. So it just led to more usage of the website. And yeah, the, there was this little kind of like flywheel that happened and then eventually, at some point, Dig became much bigger than Dignation. Like it was like clear that there were so many people listening or watching and reading and consuming Dig, and Dignation still had a pretty niche following of the hardcore original people. But that was totally fine with us. We were just having fun doing the show. Dig was reaching, I think, what did it cap out at? Like thirty-eight million monthly uniques. That's right. Yeah. Wild. I mean, at that point, that was an enormous audience to be reaching on the web. Yeah. It was pretty big. It was like top 10 web property, and it's still pretty big. I would love to have another site that does 38 million <laughs> uniques. Well, I guess like when, when I say at that time, like because Facebook now reaches, what, 3 billion monthly active users, I think, if I have it right, you were out ahead of Facebook, and Facebook hadn't really started becoming the juggernaut that it is until the sort of late 2000s. Uh, I, I think that was started in 2004. But at one point, didn't Mark come visit you when you rolled out 
the dig button that was like letting you upvote articles on their websites when they were thinking about the like button that is now sort of famous and everywhere. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So we had a common investor, Greylock, and David Z, who was at Greylock, who's on our board and also on the board of Facebook was like, hey, you guys should get together and did an email introduction. And he's like, this is this company Facebook. It's like really taking off. You guys should chat. And Dig was, had already kind of it had taken off and gotten a ton of press. And so, yeah, Mark hit me up and he's like, hey, let's, you know, I'll come to the city because he was down in Palo Alto. And he's like, I'll come to SF and love to see your offices and let's go grab some food. And so he came to the office and we chatted about kind of just what voting meant. You know, for us, it was voting on content was helping us service the best stuff. And it, and it was feeding back into our algorithm that would eventually recommend uh, similar content to people that we had this like suggested stories portions where we had a couple, it was early kind of AI machine learning type stuff that we were applying to articles. So if, if you like this, you might also enjoy these articles and so, you know, Mark was really interested in that. And this is before they had the like button. Pre-news feed, I think even pre-mini feed. Yeah, I don't, I don't remember what was going on at Facebook. It was locked down to just colleges and then they started opening it up and that's when I got an account. But yeah, he was very curious and yeah, it, it was nice. It was like Mark was a nice guy. Like we ended up hanging out a handful of times and doing a handful of dinners and he was always just like a very thoughtful and... And even once um, Facebook took off to the, it was clear that they were going to be much larger than Dig. You know, he was always really helpful. He was, he just said, if you ever, you know, need anything, like shoot me a text, like happy to collaborate in different things. And, you know, he invited us into the early Facebook platform stuff. So we were like yeah. an early partner there when they first launched their platform. And yeah, I mean, I have nothing but good things to say about how we got to know each other. Okay, there's one question I got to ask because we've seen it. It's been reported, but I, I don't think I've ever heard you talk about it. So supposedly the story goes, according to the media, you were inspired to start Dig to like make the leap and actually start this after you had lunch with somebody. Is that true? Are you talking about Commander Taco? Oh, no. Uh, the story I heard was you had lunch with Waz. Oh, no. It was not Waz. No. Oh, interesting. Okay, so this is from... The Business Week story, like we went, we read the story that was the you know the famous cover, and they reported there that you were inspired to start Dig because you had lunch with Waz and you were like, uh, I'm gonna go be an entrepreneur. That's so funny. There's so many different. <laughs> That's Sarah Lacey that wrote that story. That's funny. Yeah, this is the problem. Like, and this is so true with so many of my friends' startups. Like, success has a thousand founders, like they say, or they used to say a very like a thousand fathers or whatever it was, but that's like not PC. So. There is so many different lore stories, or there was even Wikipedia is completely wrong. So when I look at Wikipedia <laughs> and the founding stuff there, it's completely wrong. It's just amazing. Yeah. So do you want me to just like cover the actually? The quick yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. What is the yeah. like non-apocryphal as you remember it? Even if it's like a bland, the real what happened? Well, this is the truth. This is exactly how it went down, and I don't, I don't know that I've ever told the full thing, but I'll, I'll just do the quick version of it. So basically what happened is there was a site out there called Delicious that was created by Joshua Schachter that was all about yeah. social bookmarking. And he would bookmark things and he would count the number of bookmarks on things. And this was one of the very first Web2 properties. And it would surface interesting bookmarks. 
But it wasn't news because people didn't typically bookmark news. They would bookmark things that they wanted to return to later. And I would see that. And I was like, wow, it's, it's servicing cool stuff here. I wonder what would this would look like if you applied it to everything. Okay. So that was one piece of it. The other piece of it was that I did have lunch, but it was with uh, Commander Taco, who is the founder of Slashdot. Slashdot. Yeah. Yeah. And so he came and he was a guest on the show. And when I had lunch with him- And this was on the screensavers? uh, Yes, but it was down in LA. Okay. And so I had lunch with him. This was 2004 or early, mid-2004. I asked him where all those user submissions went because Slashdot is great and it promotes like their favorite stories to the front page and they're all user submitted content, but you can't see any of it. So I was like, gosh, there has to be just so many good submitted stories here that they're just not surfacing. And I was like, why don't you make it? I literally told him, I was like, why don't you make it so we can see all the submissions and then we can like vote up the best ones. And he's like, nah, I don't want to do that. Blah, blah. That's not the way it works. And so I was like, okay, well, I'm going to go build this. Uh, this is like when Vitalik proposed the idea for a distributed world computer to David. Who, who- oh, it was the Colored Coins and MasterCoin, uh, the Israel Bitcoin 2.0 project. He was like, you guys, we should just do this all as one like master thing. <laughs> and they're like, no, nah, we're not going to do that. And he's like, okay, cool. I'm going to go start something new. Yeah. I mean, that was basically what had happened here with Slashdot. As I said, I, well, I'm just going to go start something new then. And then I went out and I kind of, basically just sketched it out. Like I sketched out what it would look like, what a dig button would feel like, what an upcoming section would be, um, where submissions would go, like the whole thing. I found a freelance developer. I hired that freelance developer to create the first prototype. His name was Owen. It says on the website, he was a co-founder. That's not true. He was a freelance developer. and But you know, he's the closest thing I had to a co-founder because we were in this together and he built it. It also says that Jay Adelson was a co-founder. That is not true. I hired Jay to be the CEO like four or five months later. It also says that Ron is a co-founder. Ron was my first technical kind of back-end hire a few months later. So it's like, and I'm not claiming that these guys claim that. I'm just saying this is the way it was written. So I don't have any like ill will against any of these people. But like when people see who the first few people are, they call them all co-founders and all this thing gets written about who did this and that. And I'm just like, whatever, like, it's fine with me. I don't care that Wikipedia never gets corrected, but that is the origin story. Oh my God. That's so great. Well, it gets so twisted because, uh, so in the lore out there, like the having a guest on the show on the screensavers and then that leading to part of dig is out there, but it says that you had Jay on the show and then you brought him in, but it sounds like, no, there was commander taco. No, Jay was on um, the screensavers, and I met Jay through going out. He um, was one of the co-founders of a, a company called Equinix, which was a big yeah. data center company. Huge. And so, yeah, huge. And so I, I went out and met him through that. And then he, you know, about six months into, well, he really wanted to do revision three, and he was the first check into revision three to create that content. And so that was awesome that Jay supported us back in that day. But he told me to get rid of dig he he thought it was a distraction to revision three and he was like oh you should sell it like dude just focus on revision three this is our thing i put money into this like we need to focus on this and i was like jay you don't understand dig is going to be big it's growing we can do both and so eventually about three or four months later jay was like oh i see yeah it is growing quite a bit and i was like hey how about I give you some equity? Would you come on and run this? I, I don't know anything about raising from venture capitalists. I've never done it before. You've clearly been down this path. You've taken a company public. You can help out here. 
And so we agreed to, I gave him some equity, a few percentage points to the company. He then built out the right legal folks to work with, brought them on board. You know, I had formed the company using like one of these, like it, it was, there was no rocket lawyer at the time, but it was like a rocket lawyer-esque type like thing. So the docs were all done wrong. I didn't have any like board meetings or meeting notes and like it was all jacked up. So we had to have the docs all redone. And and so Jay was very good at helping kind of correct a lot of my mistakes that I had made early on. But yeah, he didn't actually come on until like six or seven months later after there was some real momentum there. There's a thing that I've referenced and you've referenced here, which is Web 2.0. What did that mean to you at the time? I didn't know. I didn't even know what it was called. Like <laughs> I literally, Jason Calacanis came up to me who had run Weblogs Inc., which was in Gadget and a bunch of the other sites. He tried to buy Dig very early on. He saw that it was driving traffic to his sites. And he sat down with me at Sushi in LA. And this was after Dig started to have, it was very small. And he's like, I'll give you a million dollars for this. And then I was like, okay. Which is classic lowball. Like, <laughs> so J-Cal. Yeah. Well, honestly, I was like, okay. You know, I came from nothing, man. Like my parents had zero dollars, as did I. And so I was like, yes, let's do that. And he sent me- And you'd just been making a salary at Tech yeah, TV, exactly. right? You didn't have equity in that. Like... No, I had like $10,000 in savings and I'd spent a lot of it on building the prototype of Dig. And my girlfriend was pissed at me for that. And so basically, you know, he came in, but then there was like, he sent me a term sheet and it was like, you get 200K up front. And then if you hit these milestones, you get like another 100K here. And it was like this really complicated, I was like, eh, I don't like this. Like we're growing a lot. And so ended up saying no and actually raising money instead. But he said to me during that lunch, he was like, you're like one of the biggest web 2.0 companies. And like, literally I thought, is there a software I need to upgrade on my servers that makes me web 2.0? I was like, there's something I'm not aware of. I need to upgrade because I'm not web 2.0. I did not do that upgrade. Like I had never heard that term before. Which is so fascinating because to me, and maybe it was a couple of years later, Dig was the embodiment of Web 2.0. It was dynamic content. It was Ajax. It was user-submitted content. It was what became social media. Oh, dude. After I found out what it was, I was like, of course I'm Web 2.0. Yeah. Yes. Yes, of course we are. But I, I invented had no this stuff. I had no idea what it was. <laughs> well, it's this amazing thing that like, I think the people who are the deepest in a thing that's becoming a thing in the world aren't the people who get to name it, which is the most fascinating thing. Like when we were interviewing Vlad from Webflow, he was like, oh, I found out like two years ago that we were a no-code company, but like our company is 11 years old. So good to know about this no-code thing. And now, of course, they like have embraced it and have the no-code conference and all this stuff. It's so cool. I mean, on your show, like you're having all these awesome NFT artists on and I feel like that's their story, right? Like that, yeah. like people, like everybody, they're like... Yeah, I don't know. Like, I'm just making my art. Yeah, it, it is one of those things that almost everyone, a lot of entrepreneurs that I meet, it's, it's a dirty secret. It's like you go back and you look at these different covers of magazines and this great success. And like, no one really has a clue that they're ever going to be as big as they become when you talk to the top companies that are out there. It's always like, this should exist. I'm going to go build it. But it's 99% of the time, it's quite shocking that it gets as big as they, you don't really plan that. It was kind of like, I remember when Uber first came out, I was like, oh, how many people are going to get into other people's strangers' cars? Oh, okay, I guess it'll work for black cars. It'll work for black cars. That's, that's what it'll be. And that, and that was the launch. The plan was like black car service, like with an app. Like never did the founders ever dream it was going to be applied to yeah. a random Toyota Corolla. You know, like it just, that was never imagined that you would feel comfortable. Well, are you... 
you must have known Garrett from this whole oh, yeah. era, right? Garrett and I were really good friends and he had you know, created Stumble Upon and we didn't see each other as competitive really. So we had always go, Garrett and I just like were really close in the in Web 2.0 days and we would just go have beers all the time and talk about features and, and building out some of this stuff. But then, uh, yeah, I later ended up dating his ex-girlfriend and and then we kind of had a little <laughs> that didn't go over so well. But we're, we're, we're cool now. So that's why you, J. Cal invested in Uber and Angel invested in Uber and you didn't? That would be a big reason why I didn't invest <laughs> in Uber. But we're, oh, we're good amazing. now. It's like the dumb, dumb shit you do in your 20s. You know, it's like it was it was such a small thing, though. Like you got to remember that Web 2.0 and, you know, this whole world, it really isn't as big as startup scene as it is today. And so when we would go meet up at a bar, we'd say, OK, OK, fly a bar into Visadero and in, in SF. Let's go hang out. Let's grab some beers. It was easy to grab Garrett from Stumble Upon and, you know, get Josh Schechter from Delicious to show up to something or, you know, Ev from Twitter or whatever. Like we would just all hang, you know? So it wasn't like we never knew that these projects were going to be that big. We were just having fun yeah. building software. Meanwhile, let me just insert a midpoint. So today, tech is like the five biggest companies in the world. And Kevin, you're describing this era where like, Basically, all the people that run a lot of those big companies or started them or were involved in the founding or were angel investors are like hanging out, getting beers. There's this interesting midpoint that I remember viscerally where I went to South by Southwest in, I want to say, 2011, and you and Alex were doing a live dignation at Stubbs Barbecue, huge sort of like outdoor, like great barbecue, but like concert venue. And 4,000 people. It was huge. And I'm pretty sure. After you did the show, the Foo Fighters played. Was it the Foo Fighters? I think you, no. It was a big band, though. I can't, was it the Foo Fighters? It was I someone... don't. I wasn't a fan of the Foo Fighters, so maybe it was. But I remember there was a big band we had play one year that I was just kind of like, I don't know. I wasn't a huge fan, and everyone was thought it was a big deal. And then we had the <laughs> Walkman play another year, which I was a huge fan of, and so that was awesome. I stuck around for that one. I was like, oh, this is really cool. But yeah, that well, that was the cool thing about South by, right? Is you had these big bands coming in because they would play music the next week and they'd come into town early and it was easy to book someone. Like I remember Snoop Dogg was going and doing different South by things because he was going to be out there anyway for the following music week or whatever. So it was easy to get a big name to come play your little gathering. Uh, that makes sense. Podcast live show. Yeah. It still definitely accomplished this feeling though of me feeling like, as someone who was totally following this all from the outside, because I was in high school and early college in like 05 to 09 and feeling like there's a bunch of insiders and I'm not part of the insiders, but like they're like spitting distance away where like when I grow up, I want to be like one of them. That dignation moment where I was looking around at South by, I was like, oh, this is like pretty mainstream. This has become a part of culture. Dude, it shocked us all. Literally, we booked that venue and I'm like, I hope it looks like there's enough people here. Otherwise, this is going to be a little awkward. Like, we had no <laughs> idea that that many people would show up. And it was crazy because I brought my dad out to that show and my dad had really no clue. I mean, he had seen that we did these live dignations and and I kind of hid it from him because he didn't like me swearing a lot, even though he swore. So it was just like, what? what you like, you know, I think he'd be cool with it today if he was still around. But anyway, he saw that show and saw the, all those people. And then when we left the venue, 
you know, all these people were back in the day trying to come up and get my autograph and all that stuff. And like, they kind of followed me out to the car that we were getting into, which was just crazy. Cause I was like a geek and to have that kind of treatment was odd. But my dad saw all that and he, my dad was just blown away and he ended up passing away two years later. I remember just being like, you know, it was a special moment for me because we didn't have a whole lot growing up and my dad was really proud. I'm just really glad I had that because I, I, I didn't, I didn't, I bet I decided to fly him out. I didn't know whether I should or not. And I, and I was like, okay, I should fly my dad out because he should be part of this. And, and it was just like, it was the right call. Those are very special moments for me for sure. I bet. There's an interesting, like, looking backwards moment there where that probably applies universally. It's almost always the right call. If you're like, should I do something that overextends myself financially or is, you know, an inconvenience or something to have a family member come see something that could be special? It's almost always the right thing to say yes. Yeah. And experiences, I would say, are, are definitely like the number one thing to invest in. Like they're the best money spent. We want to thank our longtime friend of the show, Vanta, the leading trust management platform. Vanta, of course, automates your security reviews and compliance efforts. So frameworks like SOC 2, ISO 27001, GDPR, and HIPAA compliance and monitoring. Vanta takes care of these otherwise incredibly time and resource draining efforts for your organization and makes them fast and simple. Yep. Vanta is the perfect example of the quote that we talk about all the time here on Acquired. Jeff Bezos, his idea that a company should only focus on what actually makes your beer taste better, i.e. spend your time and resources only on what's actually going to move the needle for your product and your customers and outsource everything else that doesn't. Every company needs compliance and trust with their vendors and customers. It plays a major role in enabling revenue because customers and partners demand it, but yet it adds zero flavor to your actual product. Vanta takes care of all of it for you. No more spreadsheets, no fragmented tools, no manual reviews to cobble together your security and compliance requirements. It is one single software pane of glass that connects to all of your services via APIs and eliminates countless hours of work for your organization. There are now AI capabilities to make this even more powerful, and they even integrate with over 300 external tools. Plus, they let customers build private integrations with their internal systems. And perhaps most importantly, your security reviews are now real-time instead of static, so you can monitor and share with your customers and partners to give them added confidence. So whether you're a startup or a large enterprise and your company is ready to automate compliance and streamline security reviews like Vanta's 7,000 customers around the globe and go back to making your beer taste better, head on over to vanta.com acquired and just tell them that Ben and David sent you. And thanks to friend of the show, Christina, Vanta's CEO, all acquired listeners get $1,000 of free credit. Vanta.com slash acquired. Well, gosh, I could do this absolutely forever. I do want to talk about some Web3 stuff. And I, I want to make the point, and, and I think we have a little interlude in, in the middle where I want to talk about before you became MoFi Kevin, but after Dig, there's some interesting chapters in there. A lot of the things that you're observing about that era feel similar to what's going on in crypto right now. Like it's kind of the true believers. It's kind of everybody knows each other. There seems to be a lot of like real genuine information sharing and just like belief in a common purpose, even though everyone kind of interprets the purpose differently. Does it feel like that to you too? It does. Yeah. I would say this is the first time since Web 2, where I felt that type of connection and camaraderie around 
a new technology that the mainstream has yet to embrace, is starting to embrace, but is yet to embrace. And we're all early and we all see it and we all believe in it. And it's just a matter of time. Yeah. Time creates confidence. It's interesting you feel like it's the first time since then, because you look at like all these theoretical waves since then that like the media and VCs were sort of calling the next big thing, some of which sort of have been, you know, machine learning is, you know, a reasonable one. And like, obviously, there was the mobile wave after the sort of social wave. But the mobile wave felt like a, a kind of land grab. It was very obvious. You know, the mobile wave was something where when the iPhone came out, everyone's like, oh, of, of course, this is going to be huge. There was no doubt, you know, and it hit consumers' hands immediately, right? And so there was none of this, you have to believe. Mm. It just, it was a given. Well, it was also just, it was an expansion of the existing Web 2.0 market, really, right? Like Instagram was Flickr, right? Like WhatsApp was, you know, AIM. Like it's not, uh, the analogies were one-to-one. Right. And then and then the big players were like, okay, we'll just make apps. Like Facebook made a mobile app and like Twitter made a mobile app. And like that was just an easy kind of transition for them. And and Web3 is very much like Web2. When Web2 first came out, people were like, I don't know if this is going to be big. What are these social network things about? Am I really going to show people what I'm into by voting on things? Like there was a lot of like, just I don't know that I believe this to be true. And that's the same thing that's happening in Web3 now. Like, does this crypto thing real? Is it really going to scale? Are these NFTs really collectible? Is it just people, you know, making up stuff? And, you know, there's a lot of doubt there. So I, that's that's the kind of excitement. Because I love, there's an excitement that you get when you see something early that you believe to be true, but everyone else disagrees with you. <laughs> that's always kind of fun. And there's so many more entrepreneurs, like we said, like, you know, NFT artists, entrepreneurs, DeFi projects where like they're building stuff because they're like, oh, I'm in this community. This needs to exist. Right. Not like, hey, I've got this business plan and there's this obvious, you know, seam I'm going to go attack. It's true. Where I'm a partner over there, we don't invest in business plans. We sit down with an entrepreneur, we listen to their idea. We want it to be new, novel, exciting. And if it works, it should be massive. And that's what we get excited about. We want to back incredible people building very ambitious things. Okay. So let's. Talk about kind of during this transitionary period. What was your journey like in crypto? Like, when did you first hear about it? When did you buy your first Bitcoin? Like, how did we go from the end of Dig to MoFi? It's a great question. I'd have to go back and search Twitter. I think I first tweeted about Bitcoin in 2012. Have you ever searched your Gmail to try and figure out? You can use like the before search operator. This is kind of a fun thing to do is like open your personal Gmail, search Bitcoin or crypto and figure out what the very first mention of it is in an email exchange. Oh, that's interesting. The question is, yeah, I guess I would have had that in. I had never even thought to do that. I mean, can we stop down for a second sure, while I yeah. do that real quick? Yeah, let's do it. Let's see here. So the first email I have about Bitcoin is June 12th of 2011. And it's an angel investor business plan. Andre from Canada says he likes Dignation and Foundation and wanted to tell me about this idea around Bitcoin. That is the first time that I actually see it mentioned in huh. my inbox. And then the first Coinbase transaction I have is from... Okay, yeah, so I apparently I tweeted out my Coinbase link to get referrals, and they were sending me on... Tuesday, August 14th of 2012, 
I started receiving a tenth of a Bitcoin, 0.1 Bitcoin. Oh my God. Which it says, this is what it says. Hi, Kevin Rose. Coinbase just sent you 0.10 BTC worth $1.13 USD using Coinbase. Hell yeah. Congratulations, your friend, and then there's an email address, has verified their account on Coinbase. We've credited you 0.1 BTC to your account. And so I was started getting a quarter of a Bitcoin, and then I have just like dozens and dozens of those emails worth a dollar sixteen if it was a quarter. So yeah, Bitcoin was pretty cheap back then. And that <laughs> so that means that I had a, a Coinbase account back in mid twenty twelve. Okay. Awesome. We're gonna get back to Coinbase in one sec, but we we gotta have one little digression. You mentioned foundation. It's Trent Reznor, right? Is the music in the beginning. Yeah. Yeah, the starting Bong. music on Foundation. Yeah, that's another another little show I, I did where I interviewed entrepreneurs. Okay. How did you get Trent Reznor music? Well, he released that as a complete open source and he got rid of all the rights. All the stems, right? Even the tracks. So he had one album where he just released the entire thing to be used for any purpose. And we were doing, I don't know if he had commercial rights. I don't think he would have said commercial rights in there, but we were non-commercial. We weren't putting any ads in or anything. So we used that. I had a chance to go and, and visit Trent at his house because we had him on for uh we used to do these before they were ask me anything's we did these things uh called dig dialogues where people could vote oh, up their yeah. favorite questions yeah. for people they ask and so we had the community vote up their top questions for Trent Reznor and then I went and interviewed Trent and and that was uh that was a ton of fun. Oh, that's so awesome. I like love searching old tweets and old emails as you can tell in preparing for this episode I I think the first time I tweeted about dig was a link to the dig dialogue with you and and Trent. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, that was a that was a so much fun to do that show with him. His house is crazy. He's, he's like the most rock star, coolest house ever. Like it's all dark and like leathery and cool looking dogs. Everything about his house is cool. <laughs> he's such a pure artist. Yeah, yeah. You see, well, it's crazy. I was like, we were chatting and we were talking about like all this different stuff, and we we were walking out, and he's like, "Do you want to see my recording studio?" Like, because he's got one in his house. You're like, "Nah, I gotta go." <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Like in my mind, I'm like, "You don't understand." Like my high school years were all about Nine Inch Nails, and like some that was some of my favorite music. And and so I was like, that kind of nonchalantly, I was like, "I'm like, yeah, yeah, you've got time. I'll, I'll check out your recording <laughs> studio." And so we like just walked down there, and it's exactly what you expect. It's like you walk into this room; it's all soundproofed, and it's like racks of old analog equipment oh. with like wires going between them like a mad scientist like room to be a fly on the wall in this room oh. it's just so cool oh. like he's creating all this music with real analog electric oh, signals running through yeah 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 which is how all those guys used to do it, like Fatboy Slim and like there are a bunch of great documentaries it's out so there cool. about it, uh, that era now where like it wasn't it was digital, but it wasn't like like the source was analog. Right, exactly. I love it. All right, Kevin, bringing us back, I found your first three tweets with Bitcoin in it. In June 2011, you tweeted, testing out Bitcoin. Can someone send a couple cents to this address? Thanks. And then you have a, a wallet address. Yeah, that address I lost the keys for. So you can look up that wallet address, and I think there's over a Bitcoin in there or something like that. So there's like whatever the prices are, lost 50, 50 grand or something. You and everyone else, man. Yeah, I'll never recover that. If you pull up that tweet, please do not send any more Bitcoin in that direction. 
<laughs> Second one, for those asking about Bitcoin, this is also in June. Uh, more info here. We use coins.com. Still haven't got any coins. Must be doing something wrong. Hmm. I was started mining, I think, back then. Oh. Uh. And then here it is, the big one, 2012. Playing around with Coinbase, a new startup that hosts your Bitcoin wallet. Check it. Yeah. So that I was, um, Brian, I had him on foundation, Armstrong, the founder, and he, I saw him at demo day, uh, at YC and I told him I wanted to invest and I was uh, investing at Google ventures at the time. And so I was a partner over Google ventures. I brought that to the Google ventures team. Uh, I won't call it any partner in particular, but let's just say one partner who I absolutely adore, and I'm not going to call them out, but if you hear this, I adore you called it tulips <laughs> and basically said that, you know, we can't, the, the fear, and, and this is a valid fear back then. And so I'm not, I'm not slamming this person. You have Google corporate's money. What if you invest Google corporate's money into something that becomes, or is called a scam later down the road? That does not look good for Google. Ooh, this is like a great argument against corporate venture. Cause like that is basically what venture capital needs to do in consumer. Right. So it's okay. I ended up investing in, in Coinbase a little bit later personally. So that's it all worked out. But Brian's an awesome human. We got him some great early exposure through that foundation. And I just am delighted that we helped get that company off the ground. Cause I know that foundation episode, he told me later, really recently, like maybe like three or four months ago, he told me that people still refer to that foundation episode where he was on wow. as like the first time they actually got into crypto. So we got a lot of people on board into cryptocurrency with that. And on at the end of the day, that is the thing that gets me excited about doing the foundation podcasts, about doing podcasts around finance. The reason I don't take sponsors and I don't try to like monetize this stuff is like that's not what it's about for me at this point in the stage of my career. It's about getting more people on board and excited about these new and upcoming technologies and hopefully helping them avoid a lot of the crap that's out there. Because with where anytime there's money involved, there's people that are trying to scam and take advantage of others. And I want to put out content because there's a lot of that other content out there. You know, there's a lot of people on crypto Twitter, not the, the groups that I run in, but if you just go a layer too deeper, you'll see so much shilling and flipping and trying to like pump and dump. And like, that's the stuff we need to get rid of. Do you have any hot takes on something that has a large user base, but you feel is pretty scammy? Well, I would say that it depends on what the goal of the project is. Like there's a lot of knockoff projects that happen. Like Dogecoin, for example, when it first got started, uh, I had Jackson Palmer, the founder on my podcast as well on foundation. And it was meant to be a cryptocurrency that could be used as a way to more or less give away for good deeds. So people were using it to kind of tip. There was all these Dogecoin tipping bots on Reddit. Yeah. Vitalik got a ton of Doge. Yeah, I mean, this. people were like back in the Reddit days of when Doge first launched, people were using the tip bots and they would send, you know, a thousand Doge here, like 2000 here. Oh, that was a great comment. Here's 50 Doge. And so that's why the supply was so large is they he wanted to create this enormous mm. supply so it wouldn't be hoarded and it would just be thought of this fun thing to kind of like create this little tipping economy. And I thought that was a, a really cool idea and one that was worth playing around with. Now, there is a lot of knockoffs and clones of that with not the intention of pushing technology forward in any meaningful way, but with just the intention of price appreciation because 
they want to jump on, ride it, sell it, make money, and rinse and repeat. And you see that happening over and over. So those are the projects that I think are to be avoided. You know, I certainly believe that Doge did not have that intent. I know that they didn't have that intention when they launched. It was not a pump and dump scheme. It was just like, let's have fun with this and see where it takes us. And that was the thinking there. It makes total sense. I mean, anytime there's a new paradigm or a new opportunity, let's just phrase it as new paradigm. Everyone's mindset has to shift to become a believer in the new thing. Look at Web2. The easiest thing to do would be to say like, no, why would I submit stories that other people could see? Or even worse, I mean, I remember my parents, Ben, I'm sure you remember this being like, don't put your personal information on the internet. Like, don't join Facebook. Which it turns out may actually be pretty good advice. I should be more succinct. Anytime there's a paradigm shift, it requires a leap of faith to become a true believer in the new thing. And the earliest people that have to do that, there's the most upside for them because they get to be early to that thing, which could accrue them reputation or actual you know, shares in whatever the new thing is. But it requires that leap. And so it's really easy when you you are someone who's looking around and seeing other people become awakened to this new thing to have some shyster convince you that oh, you should just become awakened to my new thing too. That looks a lot like the legit awakening that's going on with other people that's paying big dividends for them. Right. And and I get that. I think that you have to ask your question, and this is happening in the NFT space as, as well. You have to ask the question, like, what are the real motivations of this project? And so I will certainly miss some things that start off as a joke and eventually have real legs to them and evolve into a place where they are innovating in some interesting capacity that means multi-billion dollar kind of ideas out of a joke, right? Like that will happen. Communities will form and they will evolve and, and make something that is is more than just that initial kind of uh, hype cycle that happens, or we see a lot of. But for me, when I evaluate new cryptocurrency projects, I always look through the lens of, one, is there a use case here that needs to be solved? that this company is going out and solving? Is it a credible team behind it? And is there a discussion of price appreciation? Is that the main topic? Because the easiest way to see through a scam is to look, what are people talking about? Are people talking about the mooning of the coin, the price going up? Or are they talking about why the underlying technology and what is being built is so important for the future of the world? And the, if the conversation is around making money, there's a good chance you're in something that is going to be some type of pump and dump or eventually just has the bottom fall out from underneath it. So, you know, that's how I try to evaluate things. And, and it's a part of why I want to start focusing and having more NFT related content is because there's a lot of that happening in the NFT spaces as well now is like anyone armed with Photoshop can instantly churn out 10,000 characters with different glasses and hats and goggles and all that other stuff, right? And people, they call it aping into something where you just like kind of go all in. People see this and they ape into something and, you know, a community can be built around that and you can have some serious growth there. But I worry about the long-term durability of these projects. Like, is there going to be so many of them that they just seem all like kind of copycats and clones and so for me, that means I'm very selective about which investments I place there. And I do consider them investments. You're talking about when you personally buy an NFT. Right, exactly. An NFT or, or a cryptocurrency. But when I personally buy an NFT, 
I'll say first and foremost, well, what's the price point? If the price point is hundreds of dollars and it's something that you know you could afford to lose if you had to, then I, I want to love the art. You know, I bought some cool cats like uh, a few weeks ago. It wasn't because I thought cool cats were going to be the next CryptoPunks. I just thought they were cute little characters and I like to swap out my avatar from time to time, right? And they had a great community that was following them and they had plans to launch other little cool cats related things. And I'm like, this is a fun little community. And so that is why I went in and bought a few of them at lower prices. And I'm okay with losing that money because there's no money to be lost. I'll always consider them fun little things that I can put in a digital frame or have them up around my house. And it and it kind of marks a moment in time of when I thought that was cool, right? So that's fine. Now, when it comes to spending like real dollars and like actually making an investment, then I'm looking for more blue chip related stuff. And so that is, in my mind, projects that are not clones, but that were actually the first at something like, you know, the first fully on chain generative artwork or, you know, CryptoPunks defining the ERC 721 standard and being the first to kind of put that out. there. Those are the projects I look at and saying those will always historically look back and say those were important for this space if you believe in the NFT space. And I think they will have long-term collectability and, and durability from a price standpoint. So that's how I, I look at it when I'm buying those things. It's funny. Implicit in what you're saying is the very same reason why the founders of some new groundbreaking consumer thing always have way more upside than any investors or anyone who comes later. It's because they were true believers in the thing for the value of the thing, even before it had any notion of being an investment. That's right. And that's why oftentimes anybody who's seeing a trend and saying, oh, I got to get in on that, and they develop their business plan, just to use the same parlance that we used earlier, that's why there's always less opportunity there than for that like initial core sort of like community where there's a lot of heat. Right. It also strikes me like, man, the parallels to modern art, right? Like, you know, anybody can make a knockoff painting of a Campbell soup can or Marilyn Monroe, right? But nobody was doing that before Andy right. Warhol. It's just like such an obvious analogy here. Yeah, I mean, there's things on the NFT side that are, are first, you know, there's certainly some of the programmability that you can do on NFTs and what's coming there is really interesting. There are going to be new genres of art that are created, which is a very exciting thing. I mean, this idea of generative art, like what's happening with art blocks and that the user doesn't know what they're going to receive when they make a purchase for the first time. And that, you know, that transaction hash is used as part of uh, and fed into the algorithm that actually generates the art. I mean, that has never really been done before in a way that we could capture it and hold on to it. I mean, it could have been prototyped and, and done in a way that could be displayed, you know, a decade ago, but there was no way to like prove ownership. And so, yeah, there's some really cool things that I'm just seeing. And I'm, I'm excited for the depth that is going to be coming to NFTs rather than it just being about a place to mint a JPEG or a GIF. It's going to be, or I guess it's called GIF. I always get corrected when I say that. Oh no, it's GIF. Uh, it's GIF. It's GIF. It's, GIF. it's, GIF. it's ah. actually GIF. We had a whole debate on this. <laughs> I, I know technically, but like... The developers that created it say it's GIF, like the peanut butter. So <laughs> The community has wrested control of this. Yeah, it, it's crazy. But anyway, yeah, so there's some really cool, you know, new thinking there that I'm I'm excited to hopefully invest in. Were you into art before NFTs? Yeah, I have been for quite some time. Not Not in a deep way, but it's something that as someone that has built a bunch of projects, I've always kind of been 
a usability, a feature, and a, a branding kind of person. So, you know, everything that I've created has always been the names that I've come up with, logos, things like that, always work very closely with designers on iterating and kind of refining. And so I'm someone that can appreciate it. And, you know, I've I've always been a big fan of certain artists, but yeah, this is just like a whole whole new level. Like these new digital first NFT artists like X Copy and some of the people that are just doing really bold, fun things. I, I just get really excited about. I didn't realize it until now, but you're kind of the perfect person to really understand a lot of the value with NFTs because in a lot of ways you're an artist yourself. You look at a lot of the products you've built that have always had really strong design sensibility or literally been, you know, in things like watches or I mean, even the the more recent apps you've built with fasting and it's called Oak, right? Yes. Oak, the meditation app. Yeah. It's very clear that you have a strong point of view on how something should look and feel and be as an object to use. And also you have this great investing lens at True and formerly at Google Ventures and doing all these incredible angel investments, having been a founder. And so it really is this fascinating sort of convergence of art and investing and the internet that is kind of like this like Kevin Rose stew. I, I like that stew. It's a good stew. <laughs> that's a great way to describe it. Yeah, th- those are all the things that I care about. And for me, that's what makes doing these types of podcasts like just a lot of fun. That's why I want to produce more of this type of content is I love chatting with these artists and these founders and these creatives that are doing new and exciting things and bringing that awareness to other people. So how I'm curious, about how did you get hooked up with True? Did you know Ohm from the... I knew Ohm from back in the day. Yeah. And um, he used to cover Dig a lot when he was a writer. But True had actually backed and invested in my company Milk that I sold to Google Ventures. Then they went on to back Hodinkee and Zero, And so they've, they've backed several of my companies. And so I just met them and just fell in love with the people there. I mean, they, they have a fantastic team of very low ego folks. I love everyone at True. Anyone that I've worked with, I'm always I always walk away feeling like, oh, that person has the longest view in the room to use a Sam Hinky parlance of uh caring deeply about relationships above all else. Yeah. I mean, that's it exactly. They're such long term, long view kind of investors. We pride ourselves in, in trying to take as all the pressure off the entrepreneur. You know, like we backed Matt Mullenweg from WordPress fifteen years ago. And we still have a board seat and we still have stock and we're not saying, hey, you have to go IPO or you have to sell. Like that's not in our DNA. We we want entrepreneurs to it's their baby, it's their company. We're just they invite us in for the ride. So it's like, who are we to go and try and force outcomes and do all the mean, nasty things you read that other VCs can and have done in the past? And so I realized that working with True early on, you know, when I was going to sell to Google, it was going to make a tiny bit of money for the investors, but not world-changing money. And the partner I was working with was like, Kevin, this is your company. Do whatever you want, man. If you want to go sell it, then then sell it. If you think the time is right, like make it happen. And so it was just that kind of like, it just makes me, as an entrepreneur, you have so many things that you're trying to juggle on your head and wrestle with. And just knowing that your investors is not one of them is, is one of the reasons why I was attracted. I, got, I said, I have to work with this group. And so, yeah, that's how we got hooked up. And you initially became a venture partner, right? And then transitioned into a full-time partner role? Yeah, I was a venture partner. So I was still building stuff. You know, I had built Zero, and then we decided to bring that and Mike Mazer took that over as CEO and then we funded it at True. Wait, Mike Mazer, your first boss? Mike Mazer, yeah. the dude who hired you? 
Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Mike and I just remained friends for a long time. So I hired him to work for me at Dig. He he first hired me. Then he um, left the office company, went and started working at Electronic Arts, uh, was a VP over there. Yeah. Uh, left EA, was a VP at AOL for a while, left there. And then I hired him to run marketing and BD at Dig. Wow. And then yeah, eventually awesome. he's the one that got me into fasting because he had, he had uh, a bout with a uh, really serious stage four cancer that he beat back and went into remission. Oh, man. Uh, and in conjunction with um, chemotherapy, he also uh, implemented fasting. So he's a big believer. And so he took it over as um, CEO. It's so cool. Oh, that's awesome. Okay. So how did you make that call of, you know, sitting in that emotionally of, I'm a venture partner, so I'm helping to bring great entrepreneurs to the firm. It gives me lots of flexibility where I'm not... Were you sitting on boards at that point? No. So you are you have time to sort of tinker and explore and start things and build and do media and transitioning into that you know full-time partner role to have investing be your day job. How did you make that call and how has that felt? Yeah. Well, I will say I, I was sitting on boards, just not related to True. So I was on the board of Hodinkee and Harlan Estate and the Tony Hawk Foundation and a few other things. But like, I was just, it was one of these things where building is a lot of work and it just, it is one of those things that you have to kind of go all in and give it your all. And so for me, we had just had our first kid and I was just at this point in my life where I realized that I didn't want to go and do another startup. So that's kind of the venture role thing is like, you're trying to figure it out. You're like, should I do another startup? Should we, should they fund me again? Should I go into this? And, and I thought, you know, I want, I want to optimize quality of life a little bit more. And so I was like, you know what, I think I'm going to come on and, and if they'd had me, I'd be an investor there. And they were like, yes, hell yeah, let's make it happen. And so I, I joined uh, full-time a couple of years ago and have been doing deals ever since. That's really cool. Are you looking at crypto stuff in particular? Yeah, I would say that 95% of my day job is evaluating cryptocurrency or blockchain related companies along with NFT related stuff. So, you know, we've probably deployed, if I had to guess, probably 75 million this year into blockchain related startups. Wow. And so it's, it's a decent chunk. We have a 750-ish million dollar fund. So it's a big chunk of our fund. Yeah, 10% of a fund in a particular industry is pretty heavy. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty well diversified in that that spreads across a whole slew of different protocols and coins and DeFi and scaling solutions and, you know, NFT projects and like a, a bunch of different things there. So, but yeah, we're, we're firm believers in the future of blockchain. There's no doubt that this technology is going to change everything, especially the financial and collectibles world and gaming as well. This is a great time to tell you about one of our very favorite companies, Crusoe. So Crusoe, as listeners know by now, is a clean compute cloud provider specifically built for AI workloads. NVIDIA is one of their major partners, and literally Crusoe's data centers are nothing but racks and racks of A100s and H100s. And because Crusoe's cloud is purpose-built for AI and run on wasted, stranded, or clean energy they can provide significantly better performance per dollar than traditional cloud providers. Yes, we talked about that on our ACQ2 episode with Crusoe CEO Chase Lockmiller. The other element that makes Crusoe special is the environmental angle. Crusoe, of course, locates their data centers at stranded energy sites. So think oil flares, wind farms that can't use all the energy they generate, etc., and uses that power that would otherwise be wasted 
to run your AI workloads instead. Yep. Obviously, it's a huge benefit for the environment and for customers on costs since Crusoe doesn't rely on the energy grid. Energy is the second largest cost of running AI after, of course, the price you pay NVIDIA for the chips. And these lower energy costs get passed on to customers. It's super cool that they can put their data centers out there in these remote locations where quote-unquote energy happens, as opposed to the other hyperscalers such as AWS and Google and Azure who need to build their data centers close to major traffic hubs where the internet happens because they are doing everything in their clouds. Yep. If you, your company, or your portfolio companies would like to use the lower cost and more performant infrastructure for your AI workloads... Go to crusocloud.com slash acquired, that's C-R-U-S-O-E cloud.com slash acquired, or click the link in the show notes. Okay, so this brings us to, I think the perfect place to start to wrap here is, um, you know, MoFi. Obviously, I mean, I think you've explained throughout the whole thing why you're doing it, this whole conversation. Where does it go from here? You know, you could just keep doing what you're doing, and it would be great. It's got magic. It's wonderful. But it's also like, it's all about crypto and Web3. and it feels like there's also so much more that what used to be social media can become in, you know, Web3 world. Like, how, how are you thinking about it? Like, you could have a DAO, you could be doing all sorts of stuff. Yeah, it's a good question. And I think that I'm starting to see kind of two individual worlds starting to separate a bit. So in some sense, you have traditional cryptocurrency scaling solutions and DeFi in one bucket, and then you have all the craziness that's happening with NFTs in another bucket. So I'm actually going to be launching a new podcast, <laughs> if I don't already have enough podcasts, that is dedicated to all things NFTs. So oh, cool. just NFT content. Awesome. Yeah, it's going to be called Proof. So it's proof.xyz uh, is the domain name. It's a great domain. And Oh, that's awesome. Thank you. Um, yeah, so I'm excited. Proof is going to be just going really deep on all things NFTs, and that will cover you know everything from the art and programmable side of things to the generative side to you know tokens that cover DAOs and what DAOs are doing to the gaming world and how NFTs unlock different assets and how people are buying virtual land as NFTs. We'll, we'll just cover it all there. Yeah. And then Modern Finance, the podcast... We'll still do an occasional little really important piece on NFTs, so like the you won't miss it. the people that listen to that won't miss out on the the big deeper like peoples of the world or when you have someone really big on that you want to get out there. But that will focus more on on everything that's happening on DeFi and scaling and new coins and and that that world. So I just was getting a lot of there was two camps. There's people saying give me more NFT content, and then there's the other camp being like, hey, get back to some of that crypto stuff that we miss. <laughs> And I'm like, I can't please everybody, so I got, I got to break it. <laughs> it's funny. We're getting that unacquired a little bit of like, hey, give me more of that, uh, you know, uh, Atari, like the classic tech history, or even just, you know, non-crypto stuff. And people are like, give me more crypto yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. So it's, you you know what I'm talking about. It's like, you can't can't please everybody. So for me, it's just easy to, to carve out a separate feed and, and say, listen, the best of the best from Proof, like the big names will always make it to the main Modern Finance podcast, but... If you want to hear about the new and upcoming artist that hasn't broken out yet, but I think is really cool because they're doing something unique and novel, you're going to find it on the Proof Podcast. So it should be fun. Okay. So like nerd out a little bit. What's your strategy for launching? Are you going to have like do the first couple episodes of Proof in the MoFi feed and then spin it out? Yeah. Most likely what I'm going to do is make an announcement. I have the CEO of Super Rare, which is one of the big NFT platforms that I just recorded 
I'll announce it at the beginning of that episode when we drop it on MoFi, and then people can go subscribe. I'll probably backdate and put all of the the um, NFT content that we have in MoFi into the new feed. So if you come into that feed, people can always jump back in time and say, oh, I want to listen to that interview with Snowfro, the founder of Artblocks, and they'll be able to jump back and hear that or hear when I interviewed the founder of CryptoPunks or whatever it may be. So it'll be pre-populated with probably five or six episodes, and then I'll start releasing a new NFT episode, hopefully every week to week and a half. And I would say probably one a month or so of those will make it to the main modern finance feed. And if you subscribe to both, you'll know you're like, oh, I already listened to that one. I don't need to click it on MoFi. But then MoFi will be more just like big name people uh, in the crypto industry, both in terms of creators and then people that are analyzing it and where it's going. And so I want, you know, talking through where DeFi is, how it's evolving and some of the new and interesting projects and and more of that. So yeah, it's going to be a lot of work, but this is the stuff I love to do because I, I feel like both of these industries are filled with confusion, confusion and a lot of hype and a lot of, you know, back in the, remember the ICO uh, world a few years ago, there were so oh, many yeah. scammy projects oh, yeah. there. And it's like, I hope that people can come in and know to trust me that I would not want to promote something that that is a scam or that is just there for the hype. But actually, you know, I, well, I'll always call out why why they're on the show and why I think it's worth covering, you know? So it won't be everything. It'll be a subset of what's out there. I'm so glad you're doing this because I would say I've been a latecomer in almost everything in crypto. But I guess in some ways, all of us who are currently participating in the ecosystem are early adopters because there's going to be 10 to 100x more people after us. But I would say it took me listening to the Beeple episode and... Which is so good, by the way. Everybody, oh, if you haven't you. listened to it, oh my God. Beeple... What a character. I love that guy. I just want his accent. Like I want his like uh manner of speech. It's so fun. Oh my god, he's the best. He's hilarious. I mean, you couldn't it couldn't have happened to a nicer, crazier dude. Truly. But it took me listening to that and several other of your NFT episodes for it to kind of click when NFTs first started becoming buzzy. I was definitely one of those people that was like, uh, the whole point of digital art is that it's infinitely reproducible and like why would i pay for something i can view on insta i I was definitely one of those people and i think it took me till hearing people first of all learning about the artists behind the art is actually the value feeling close to those artists and why they're doing what they're doing that is the reason to buy it at least in my opinion and sure it's cool and it's fun to look at but it, it was also the realization that he brought up of like People aren't buying NFTs. People finally have a vehicle to value digital artwork. And like digital art has been a thing for like 10, 15, 20 years, kind of in this format, but there's been no incentive to make it since it's just infinitely replicable and easy to rip off. And finally, now there's like an incentive for artists to make incredibly cool stuff and rare stuff in a way that is totally driving the level of creativity and innovation here because there is actually now an incentive for it. Yeah. There's so many pieces that unpack. That is a major one. You nailed it. But then there's also just imagine we're sadly, you know, you say I'm a little older than you guys. You guys are old too. <laughs> oh, oh, oh yeah. We and know. <laughs> there, there is a younger generation that grew up skinning their characters in games and are so used to purchasing and holding virtual objects and virtual goods. And it, there was a survey that was done that there is a very large subset of gamers that consider it was like more than 50%. It was something really scary. 
They consider their online identity in their games to be more important than their offline, like in-person identity. Wow. And so you have this world. Which actually makes total sense, like when you think about it. It makes total sense. And you have this world of people that have grown up digitally native that say, I want to be able to show my friends something cool on my phone that I own. And when they get older, they're going to say, or flip it up on my wall and have it as something I can show on my wall. And guess what? If the house burns down, I don't lose my my painting or and I don't yeah. have to worry. For me, I think about when my kids walk by something, I don't have to worry about them taking a marker to it. You know, it's <laughs> like there's just so many beautiful aspects to the portability and how you can showcase your favorite pieces of art and also just how you can unlock the potential. Like when they're programmable, what if my art changes over time and the artist bakes in certain things that unlock it the longer I own it? Like some of that is just so cool. So there's so many aspects to this ecosystem that what NFTs brings to the table that you can't have with traditional art that I think are going to take another decade or so for people to really wrap their head around. Do you know that back in the day, so when people moved from when Canvas was created, do you know that there was a huge blowback on it? No. So yeah, there's a huge blowback on Canvas because everything was painted on walls or on these like wooden... Um, yeah, frescoes. Yeah. So to move to Canvas... Many people thought during that time, it's portable. Why wouldn't you want something permanent? It's like it can be taken and copied. Like there was all these like worries around moving. So a lot of canvas art was actually worth less than things that were actually in a more permanent, you know, on the wood or on the on the wall. So it was just like this transition that happened and it took a while for people to finally adopt canvas. That's amazing. I just thought that was a hilarious story. And like the same thing's happening here, you know? Oh, man. That's so cool. I just love that Like, there's something really cool about being able to walk into a gallery or bar or wherever you are, see something on the wall and being like, wow, that artist really connects with me. Oh, it's $700 worth of ETH. Scan a code. It transfers to your wallet. It disappears from the wall. Something else appears there. And now you mm. own it. Like That's yeah. freaking cool. Like That is going to happen, you know? Hmm. Well, okay, thinking here about the future of MoFi, Kevin, you're too much of a tinkerer to just let it be that the final form of MoFi is like, I record an MP3 and then I toss it into some podcast players. So like, is there an on-chain version of content, media, something that could make sense for MoFi? That's a good question. That's a very, very sharp uh, and pointed, smart question that, I, of course, I think about that type <laughs> of stuff. That's it. I don't think of it as much for MoFi as I do for something like Proof, where I think, what can we do that is unique? And, well, you just have to wait and see. I can wait and see. I went and built, you know, Hodinkee for a few years. And, and Hodinkee was a, a kind of a proxy for what Proof might eventually become. And, like, we, you know, we did really in-depth editorial around mechanical timekeeping and watches and that attracted millions of people per month still does i mean it's, there's 150 people that work at hodinkee right now it's a massive wow. enterprise hodinkee has this unbelievable characteristic i think you guys do or did this best in the entire world of using content to enrich the value of purchasable goods it is half a content business half a commerce business and they are so wonderfully intertwined more people should take a look at that 
Yeah, I mean, Hodinkee, they've got that blend. And honestly, one of the things that we were really good at, Ben, the founder, and myself, when we sat down and we started planning out e-commerce, we wanted to make sure there was kind of a church and state line between editorial Mm. and e-commerce. Because it's very important to be able to have independent, critical pieces written about watches that you may sell. And so we had to make sure and draw that line in the sand and say, and let the brands know that like, we can be critical about your watches still and and talk about them. Like if we don't like the way that something is manufactured or you cut corners on some, one of your movements. And I mean, it gets really geeky for people that aren't into the watch world. Think about like the mechanical insides of the watch. And then think about the most hardcore vintage Porsche collector. They yeah. care about every <laughs> little tiny detail inside of that machine. That is the engine inside of this watch. And so the geeks, and that's why partially why I'm attracted to it, like some of my favorite watches are not expensive showing off watches. They're watches that would never get any attention at a party in New York, but they're meaningful because of what's inside of them. You know when you go and you pick up an Omega that has a 321 movement that was the exact internal engine, the exact movement that was taken to the moon. Whoa. Like, that is awesome. And so, like, that's the kind of geekiness that got me excited about watches. And that's what I want to bring to the NFT world. I want to talk and go deep on with these artists and talk about what drives them and how they created some of the first, especially when we're on the programmability of this stuff. Like, it's going to be really fascinating. Eventually, when I have Dimitri on that created one of the most popular projects out there called Ringers, I want to see code snippets of the Ringers project and put that into the article and show, I mean, that's the geeky level I want to get to. So that's where I'm hoping to take proof. And what's so cool, but well, I don't know if this is how you're thinking about things, but like with watches, it's like this little preview of what it could be. But the thing about watches is, you know, the super rare stuff, you know, it's hard to get. My dad's really into watches. Hi, dad, if you're listening. But you can also kind of buy it anywhere, right? Like you don't have to buy it at Houdinki. Like you can buy it at Houdinki, you can buy it elsewhere. Right. That may or may not be true, depending on where you go with proof. Like, it's not like a retail environment. Right. Yeah. I mean, the thing is for us with proof, what I think about is, and this is what Hodinkee did as well. I don't think of these businesses being built in the next six months to a year. We need to spend the first three years gaining trust, right? Like, that's mm. the main thing is like in depth editorial and content that is is worth reading and a brand that you can trust to bring the best artists to you and explain why they're the best. And that means above and beyond me, I'm going to be looking to hire editorial folks that are both traditionally and classically trained art critics that are also embracing the NFT world and give us both perspectives. You know, like we need to know um, why something might be historically important when it comes to the new stuff that's being created on the NFT front. So it's going to be a fun little venture. All right. Well, I found a whole new thing that I'm imagining I'm going to be very geeky about. So uh, I'm excited to listen and tune in, Kevin. Awesome. Well, that's you're the first listener. Thank you so much. Sweet. <laughs> it, has, it hasn't been. It's not out yet. So or it might be by the time this podcast is out, but there'll certainly be a way what to proof.xyz. Yeah, proof.xyz. There'll be a link up there to subscribe to the podcast, even if there isn't an episode out yet. There will be the, the historic ones that we've done so far. So uh, that'll be the, the best way to, to join. And then, of course, modern.finance is for all things crypto. And that's where we go deep on all of the crypto stuff. And, and that, that's a whole nother can of worms. That's a lot of fun. It's awesome. Probably our biggest segment of the acquired audience is entrepreneurs or aspiring entrepreneurs. Where can folks get in touch with you for that or, or with yeah, True? It's, it's kind of hard on the True side in that 
we typically, I would say 90% of our deals come from referrals from entrepreneurs that we've already backed. So we have a little over 300 entrepreneurs that are kind of referring in new companies to us. So we, you kind of use that as a filter because if you just had an open submit form, you would just it would be overwhelmed and it'd be impossible to get through. So if you know a true company, that's the easiest way to get a hold of us. I would say outside of that, you know, my DMs are always open on Twitter. I try to go through them like once a week, but sometimes it gets a little crazy. For me specifically, I'm looking at all the new cryptocurrency, blockchain related and NFT related deals. So if it's something outside of that realm, unless it's like health and fitness, which I also am very passionate about, or some consumer internet stuff as well, I'm probably not the right partner for you all to pitch. But yeah, that's those are probably the best ways, definitely through the network of, of founders who backed. Love it. Okay, one last little tidbit before we go. You said Twitter. How'd you get on uh, the um, who to follow list? Suggested follow list that happened at the bar in San Francisco. Yeah, that happened to Ted. So at Ted in we were down in Ted conference. And this was when it was down in SoCal, and it was me, Evan Williams, uh, and Chris Saka at a bar having some drinks. And this is when Twitter first started taking off. We were just talking to Ev. We're like, dude, it's crazy, man. There's like thousands of people signing up per day. Like it's nuts, you know? <laughs> like right at that point, I think it was like, you know, he's probably hitting 10,000 plus new users a day. It was like, it was clearly working, you know? And Sokka's like, hey, do you, do you think you, you know, you think you could add Kevin and I to the suggested user list? And it, cause it was like, um, it was a manual list. And oh, so yeah. it, it was one of those things where you, it was just hard coded. It was no like algorithm like doing <laughs> yeah. And so Ev's like, he like looks at us and he's like, all right. And so he pulls out his phone and he literally does it right there on his phone. And he's like, okay, done. And we're like, thanks, dude. And like, I had turned on notifications for anytime someone follows me because that's how small it was. And instantly my phone was like, boom, 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 boom. I'm like, holy crap, dude, this has taken off. And I like went and turned off that the notifications. And I was just like getting so many followers and then I was, it was just like, you know, it kept growing and growing and growing. And they kept that suggested user was kind of the same for a very long time. And then yeah. I got this retweet from this woman. This was like a month or two later. And I like looked at the icons like that girl's kind of cute. And I like click on her and it was like a foodie lives in San Francisco into wine, into health and fitness. No way. Working on her neuroscience PhD. And I was like, oh, who is this? And it was my my now wife, Daria. And it was yes. all because Ev added me to the suggested <laughs> user list. And actually at my wedding, I told Ev that like I especially called him out and said thank you for and Sokka for, for making that happen because it's how how I met met my wife. I hope you did something like really nice. Can you get him like a Beeple or something or like a CryptoPunk? I'll have to see if he's into NFTs. I haven't asked him about that. I haven't seen him as much now that, that we've had COVID, but uh uh, there should be a gift. I know I've sent him some nice bottles of wine in the past. So that is so cool. I feel like you got to do more than wine. For no, that. it's a good point. It's a good point. You have like one of the best stories at a party behind the statement, like, oh, my wife and I met online. Like, yeah. <laughs> Definitely. This was before I, you know, I'm kind of jealous though of these people that have it. It seems like it's easier these days. Like I didn't have any of the swiping stuff that was like, you know, to date. Like mine was all. Back in my day, it was a 24 by 24 icon on Twitter that we use for dating. You had to upvote your future wife. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, now the crypto punks make more sense. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, love it. All right, Kevin Rose, thank you so much. 
Thank you guys. Thanks for having me. This has been a blast. It's always fun to walk through the history of all this stuff and, and talk about the future. So, so thank you. All right. Likewise. Well, listeners, thank you for joining us on that journey. That was so awesome to get to do this with Kevin. As you could tell, so much of David and my, uh, I don't know, adolescence, young adulthood was involved in things that Kevin has built. So super cool to get to do that with him. Super, super cool. I have one special carve out for the end of this episode. It is a company that we at PSL Ventures just invested in. We led a $5 million round in a company called Trova Trip out of, speaking of Portland, out of Portland. And I am so pumped about this company. And I just wanted to share a little bit because I think, A, people should think about going on trips, but B, I think it's an incredibly cool company to work for if anybody's thinking about their next thing, whether you're software engineer or designer or marketer or whatever. So what Trova Trip does is they enable creators to create custom trips to over 100 places around the world and take 8 to 16 people from their audience on a group trip together. So you're traveling with like-minded people to cool places with a person that you sort of identify with, be it a yoga instructor or your favorite disc golfer or someone else that you follow on Instagram or TikTok or anything like that. And it's just a really cool upending of the sort of group travel industry and especially now when travel is actually starting to happen again. So it seems like uh, it's, it's just great timing and great team. Oh, man, this is so cool. We totally need to get an acquired uh, trip going. We'll go do all the all the Silicon Valley hots. Well, now after this episode, <laughs> we got to go find that bar on on Divisadero in San Francisco, where apparently everything went down in uh, the Web 2.0 days. But uh, oh, man, we can go to Stanford. We can go to the old <laughs> pro in Palo Alto, go to Bucks and Woodside. Oh, man. Actually, David, you and I... We almost went to Bucks one time, right? We went no, to that we did, right? Didn't we? spot next door. No, we looked in. It was full. We ended up going to that other lunch place next door. To the like the bakery, yeah. the Woodside Bakery or whatever it is. Yeah. Oh, man. Okay. We got to do it. We got to take you to Bucks. Well, we got to do it just so you and I can go to Bucks. Bucks is <laughs> a crazy experience. This like diner in Woodside, uh, which is right right next to Palo Alto, that has like all these crazy like airplanes on the ceilings and stuff and like all the old school, like the Don Valentine era venture and even a little later too like all the entrepreneurs and vcs would meet up there for breakfast it sounds like david's gonna be our tour guide this is great i I am gonna love this (laughs) awesome well listeners if you are curious to learn more it's trovatrip.com click the link in the show notes or feel free to reach out to me in the slack or at acquiredfm at gmail.com if uh, you're interested in the company in any way well with that join the slack acquired.fm slash slack Become an LP. We just dropped probably our nerdiest LP episode ever, where we had Matt McBrady on, who uh, has worked in presidential administrations for hedge funds, advising on uh, monetary policy to basically walk us through like the history of the Fed and the Fed's role in our economy and the difference between fiscal and monetary policy and what the heck is quantitative easing. And for such a hot button. Uh, topic right now. It was great to get like an expert two-hour chunk of information on what are all these concepts and how do they interrelate. Why does everybody like try and interpret Jerome Powell's every last word and why doesn't <laughs> JP just say what he means? Like <laughs> there are reasons for this. Oh, uh, it was so cool. That it was. And also check out Modern Finance. It's seriously really good. I've listened to almost every episode. Yep. Like we talked about the Beeple episode is so great. We'll link to that in the show notes. 
Man, what a cool dude. And not what you would like just think on the surface. Like he's, you gotta listen to it. Like he's awesome. Careful, you'll become a uh, NFT believer after you yeah. do. <laughs> Which is a good thing. All right, listeners, we will see you next time. We'll see you next time. Who got the truth? Is it you, is it you, is it you? Who got the truth now? Huh.